It's a pleasure to be here with Amit Badwani, co-founder at Moiris Capital Management. Amit has very graciously agreed to speak at Latticework 2017, taking place on September 7th at the Yale Club of New York, exploring the subject of intelligent investing in a changing world. Amit, thank you for the opportunity to learn from your insights, experience, and wisdom. Shai, thank you very much. I'm familiar with your background and your expertise. Why don't you please share a bit more of your personal journey, how you uh, got to your current role? Sure, thank you. Shai, the journey sort of begins not in the United States and not in New York. It starts in Canada, in Canada where I initially began to study economics. I'd already got a couple of degrees in one in engineering and one in mathematics, and economics became an interesting sort of pursuit in my spare time. I got a couple of degrees in economics. In my pursuit of these degrees, and I was studying that, I encountered a fascinating book written by an economist, and in hindsight, I realized an extraordinary investor. The economist in question, the famous one, was a gentleman by the name of Martin Schubert, a mathematical economist, and his co-author of the book was Martin J. Whitman. The book I'm referring to was The Aggressive Conservative Investor, which was originally published in 1979, which is really my first introduction to I'd say deep value investing, it actually predates my encounter with Ben Graham's Intelligent Investor and much else that followed. That was sort of the beginning. I had never taken any courses in accounting so much of the book was a mystery to me. Got my master's in business where you study accounting, finance and such, and realized much of what I was learning at university was completely counter to what I had read in that book. And what was also curious was what was in the book. The ideas of value investing articulated in the book were very, very different from what one learned. And in fact, it was much more intuitively reasonable to pursue an investment path personally initially and subsequently professionally based on the principles laid out in the book. I had the good fortune of winding up working with Marty Whitman starting in 1990. And I was at Third Avenue Management in a couple of stints until 2014. That was where I suppose I cut my teeth on value investing a la Third Avenue. And we began to adapt it to non-US investing starting in the late 1990s. And we built the international business at Third Avenue. What was interesting was there's an approach to investing, a value investing. There's a one end of the tent, I suppose, the value investing tent where you focus on great cheapness, and the measurement of cheapness is what differentiates this approach. Usually, cheapness, there's a variety of definitions of how people measure cheapness. People look in terms of prospective growth and discounted cash flows. Our approach is to think about cheapness in the here and now. It's a bit more of a straitjacket. It lets through far fewer securities as potential objects of interest, but it's nonetheless a very conservative approach which obviously appealed enormously to me. Having left Third Avenue in 2014, a group of us, three of us, members of the then international team at Third Avenue, founded Morris Capital Management in 2015. And really, that's where we are now. We're we, all we do is one thing. We run a global portfolio that spans the entire globe, developed in developing markets, which is by developing, I mean emerging and frontier markets. And that's how we approach the world. How do you unpack the phrase intelligent investing in a changing world? Well, perhaps let me address, let me drop intelligent from there. Uh, let me address investing in a changing world. 
and being mindful that, and we will see whether ultimately these thoughts are half intelligent or not. What, what, when you've been doing this for a couple of decades, you've seen a lot of things. The lot of things you've seen involve tremendous amounts of upheaval, upsets, dislocations, and changes are really a par for the course. Changes are expected. I mean, changes usually have an element of surprise, and the element of surprise often causes discomfort, and discomfort in turn presents opportunities. So how we've approached it is effectively coexist with this sort of stuff. And I'll, let me talk about how we coexist with it. When you invest, there are a number of things that are I don't want to use the word controlled or controllable because there's very little that's ultimately controllable other than your decision to own something, not own something. Uh, so that is the one decision you have to make. But you have to do this in an environment where things change and the changes are what are the so usually, the unexpected changes are often the source of discomfort and as I, was, I said before, opportunity. So how do we deal with it? Well, first we have a core investment discipline, and the discipline really attempts to guide us in the direction of extremely cheap securities, not just cheap, but cheap as well as companies that have a very high likelihood of passing through difficult times, unimpaired and unchanged, largely unmodified, undamaged, if you will, through in hard times. So you always prepare for difficult times. That is in anticipation of hard times, whether they come or not. If they come, well, you've largely prepared yourself, by and large, you prepared yourself. I mean, for example, when you buy something that's cheap, there's always a reason why it's cheap. And if the reason why it's cheap has something to do with inherent fragility of the business, you just don't do it. On the other hand, if the cheapness is a function of some sort of unpopularity or being in some kind of an unusual business that is utterly out of favor, or it's in a corporate structure that's analytically complex, you already have cheapness built in. Now, alongside the actual cheapness in terms of value, you should always determine if there's anything unsafe. Unsafe, the lack of safety or risk, blow-up risk of a company can stem from factors internal to a company or external to a company. Once you've analyzed these things and disposed of them as being things that could have a likelihood of hurting your company, then you have something that is probably robust enough to be held through good times and bad. Good times and bad, by which I mean things that are anticipated and not anticipated. If there are changes which inevitably take place, because remember, when we invest, we invest with at least a three to five year horizon. Historically, we've invested over six year time horizons. And over a six-year holding period, lots of stuff can happen. Over a short period of ownership, fewer things happen. But over a longer ownership period of a given security, the extent of variability in the environment, the circumstances, the industry, the business, the politics surrounding a company can be enormous. And the amplitude of the variations can be enormous. So you prepare yourself. You start off with a very defensive posture. And you stay that way. And that's how you protect yourself. Now, I mean, this has been a period, the recent period, there have been all sorts of upsets. You know, of course, Brexit, I mean, some very easy ones. I mean, Brexit is something that I think turned the world on its head for many people and for many companies. Our approach to Brexit was not what's gone down based on Brexit right now, the here and now in the UK, but our approach was slightly different. The opportunity that Brexit presented to us was of the following sort. Brexit, the vote happened, and the decision that 
the UK, Britain was going to leave, was announced. Well, what that did was there was a whole slew of very cheap securities in Italy, in the financial services sector. They were probably some of the cheapest things out there in the spectrum of European securities. Now, of course, uh, when the Brexit news came out, the news of the vote came out, the spreads, the credit spreads in Italy widened enormously. So what was very cheap before became extremely cheap. And that is the nature of the opportunity that a little upset provided us. And again, that was a starting point of our investment in Italian financial institutions, which has panned out actually quite decently. Again, the company in question that we bought was a company, there was no question it was not going to be a survivor. It was very solvent, very well capitalized, deeply undervalued, and clearly going to be a survivor through many different situations, scenarios of adversity that we could think about. And all this did, it presented us, Brexit, the Brexit vote presented us to buy it very cheaply. So upsets, discomfort provide us opportunities, and it's uncertainty is not to be shunned or fled from. Think of uncertainty and sort of discomfort as a source of opportunity for you. And that's historically what it's done for us. It's presented us with opportunities, which is one of the reasons we've seen places where there's enormous amounts of uncertainty. The future looks quite murky. The crystal ball looks quite murky. Those are very interesting places for us. History might not repeat, but it could rhyme. Could you elaborate on your uh, observations? Sure. I mean, the things that sort of resonate, the echo, for example. Uh, let me give you one very quick example, a sense of deja vu that you have. So early in my professional investment career, one of the first financial market crises I encountered was in 97, 98. In 97, the starting point was a teetering began with Thai banks. Thai banks had lent money quite recklessly to all sorts of real estate developers. And of course, the creditors of the Thai banks started to pull their money and the whole thing began to slowly spiral. And of course, there's a tremendous amount of denial in other parts of Asia. And everybody sort of tucked at it and said, well, this is a problem with Thai banks. Thai banks have been engaging in foolish lending. And of course, it's only a Thai problem. Well, as history would, have, would tell you, a year later, in 1998, most of Asia was sucked into a black hole called the Big Asian Crisis. And of course, you had runs in banks, financial companies blowing up in Korea, and so forth. So there was a tremendous amount of stress in many of the countries, arguably much greater in the lesser developed ones, places like Indonesia, Malaysia, South Korea, and uh, Thailand. Fast forward a decade later. Now, take the locus of the drama really shifts to the United States. Again, the big difference, of course, the U.S. is a big, very large, deep capital market. So, of course, it's a bit, it would seem hyperbolic to assume that all the stuff that happened in Thailand and Asia during the 97-98 period would happen in the United States. Well, the U.S. may have been a deep, large capital market and all sorts of, there was a diversity of financial products available to finance all kinds of things. However, starting in 2007, you start to see the housing-related, the residential mortgage-backed securities market started to teeter. And you saw that happening not just in the US, you also saw that happening in the UK. And of course, in this time, in the developed markets, there was a lot of tut-tutting that came out of Europe saying, oh, these, it's the Anglo-Saxons who are doing this. This would never happen here. 
And again, as we know, in 2008, the global financial crisis sucked Europe right into it. And of course, their banks were stressed and had trouble there as well. Again, the same canary gagged the second time, and you could see that happening, the denial that people engage in. So always be very, very wary when people say can't happen here. Well, amazingly, it happened in the United States. I will confess, the echoes were certainly there. We certainly did not see lines of people waiting outside banks to pull their money out in the U.S. as we saw in Asia. When I visited Asia in the middle of 1998, when the Asian crisis was in full blossom, but certainly it was a scary time in the United States, which also provided a tremendous opportunity yet again. And you've also lived through multiple market cycles. Yeah, I would not describe any ability on my part to predict or forecast, and I certainly wouldn't do that. However, as a price taker, you've always got to be ready. You've always got to be ready. Usually, the way we operate is we read lots and lots of things about many different companies. You learn about companies and just basically put it aside. You put it aside for whatever reason. Oftentimes, things are not cheap enough. Oftentimes, we think there's some deal breakers in there. Maybe something's wrong with the balance sheet, so on and so forth. There's always reasons why something is less than perfect to be included in a portfolio. However, sometimes a lot of things come together. And usually when things turn ugly in downturns, that's when you find the opportunities become most attractive and most available at the right price. And which is why we're rather price takers. So cycles, market cycles, market fluctuations provide those to us. Rather than thinking in terms of will there be or won't there be, I have no idea. For example, I mean, the last time one of the great opportunities occurred to buy things in India, securities in India, was in 2013, probably Q3 2013, when there was a, there was a huge taper tantrum when Bernanke started to make noises that he was going to raise rates. India's capital position was poor. And of course, since then, they've had elections. Everything's done very well. I have no idea when the next opportunity might occur. Of course, if I had some pressures about it, uh, the cyclicality of the market there, I would be ready and waiting because there could be great opportunities. But generally, as a price taker, it behooves one to be very aware of the world in which you're investing in terms of circumstances and given markets, how securities are being valued, and take advantage of that. I'd love to elaborate on your global perspective. So one of the areas, one, a collection of countries that have been impacted for a variety of reasons not the least of which is there, I suppose, the commodity-related exposure. I mean, speak to two countries in particular. One country is Colombia. Now, Colombia is sort of not the top of the hit parade as it was for a number of years, post the early 2000s, when, of course, Colombia began to de-risk. They had a very sort of, a government was very much in charge of taking care of the security situation, and oil was doing very well. Oil has, of course, since then, tumbled, tumbled enormously. So what's this all got to do with Colombia? Well, as a security situation in Colombia became better and oil prices rose, the realization dawned that there was enormous parts of Colombia which were hydrocarbon rich and had not been explored. There was a tremendous oil boom that took place. It was so large that at one point, in 2014, oil accounted for more than half the export earnings of the country. Well, then oil collapsed. Oil prices collapsed and, of course, down with the export earnings. The export earnings tumbled, the currency tumbled, which in turn, of course, inflation went up and interest rates went up. So that's all from the perspective of a consumer. 
that's pretty toxic stuff. You know, your purchasing power tumbles, interest rates go up, and inflation goes up. It's kind of messy. So that presents a class of opportunities there. For example, retailing. Retailing in a young, growing country is an interesting business. However, these sorts of consumer-related companies in developing markets usually are quite expensive because the mirror, I think, the great theme most people invest according to. You buy emerging markets and you buy the emerging market consumer and people are always willing to pay up for them. Well, the company in question is the one I've known for about a decade before we actually put, actually more than a decade, uh, before we put our first dollar to work there was a company called Exito, which in turn had been pummeled because of tumbling purchasing power, rising interest rates and rising inflation rates. There are a whole bunch of other interesting opportunities stemming from the same larger phenomenon of a tumbling currency and a slowing economy and so forth. And so that Colombia has a collection of opportunities, but the one that stands out as being unusual is actually the company called Exito, which is not just a Colombian company. In fact, it is a pan-Latin American retailer. It controls the largest Brazilian retailer. As a result, it's the largest, the company, Exito now, is the largest pan-Latin retailer there is. Which takes me to the second interesting location of opportunity. Now, oil has a part of the story here. Oil, it's not just oil prices, but Brazil is a country which has a gigantic company called Petrobras, which is largely controlled by the government. Now, when you have a large company controlled by the government, which has an extraordinarily enormous exploration program, uh, which is in, uh, underway, there is the opportunity for a lot of mischief. Mischief and shenanigans and siphoning cash away. And of course, suddenly but suddenly, an investigation into all these activities began. And of course, Brazil is going through this whole period of self-examination with even the most iconic of their leaders being convicted of illegal, the receipt of bribes, basically, engaging in illegal activity, which is uh, receiving some assistance towards the purchase of a beachside apartment in Rio. So, which is remarkable, it's quite extraordinary, and this is a, a sort of a first in the history of Brazil, I mean, the extent to which this corruption probe has uncovered people. It has snared major business leaders, major politicians. So there's a tremendous cleanup underway. But what does it have to do with the stock market? Well, basically, this has resulted in a tremendous paralysis in terms of contracting for the exploration program, amongst other things, and to some degree paralysis in terms of doing business the traditional way, which in turn feeds into a slowness, a slowing, a reluctance to engage in capital expenditure, lest uh, you do something which uh, runs afoul of what is appropriate behavior. And this has really deepened an economic slowdown, which shouldn't have been as deep as it has become because of these other investigations. But Brazil presents a number of sources of opportunity. It's much more broad-based. It's a much larger market than Colombia, and the, the option set is much, much, much broader. The concept of investing bottoms-up, but worrying top-down, mm -hmm. how do you begin to worry? Oh, well, so every company that we think about, we always think of analysis as very centered and focused on individual company that we're going to be invested in. It's very important for us to know how the company makes money, what circumstances under which the company will lose money, and so on and so forth. So you have a good sense of how the world macro factors particularly affect the business. So we think of ourselves 
because we really don't think of ourselves as having the ability to forecast macro. I would argue we're quite macro-myopic. That said, while we are macro-myopic, we are not oblivious to or blind to macro factors. Macro factors, for example, are what can really take apart a company. For example, when you think about a company, you do not think about the company in isolation. You think about how different macro factors, if they were to change for an adverse manner, affect the business itself. So for example, companies can be affected, I mean, just generically speaking, by things like interest rates, inflation rates, exchange rates. So you'd think in terms of what is a plausible scenario of adversity that changes in any of these variables could cause you. Now, understand that we own things for a number of years. So it's a different kind of band how much interest rates could vary, for example, over the next year versus over the next five, six years. If you are to think in terms of owning something for five, six years, you should, in your imagination, you're thinking about a company, imagine that it could be subject to much higher interest rates than if all you did was hold it for six months or a year, for example. So you do effectively some sort of stress testing in terms of adverse developments in factors macroeconomic. Similarly, you have to think in terms of other than macroeconomic factors, what other sources of adversity could hit your company? It could be changes in governance, could be changes in uh, regulation, governmental regulation, another number of, sort of factors that can affect you. And that's how you, a lot of your worrying is, as you mentioned, done on a top-down basis. Again, the attractions are often on a bottom-up basis, but you have to make sure, be sure that these securities that you're buying are not going to be hurt. The companies are not going to be hurt by any adverse shifts in factors, macroeconomic, any other environmental factors, top-down factors. Are there any patterns in what you're trying to avoid? Well, we try to avoid business models that are less than robust. And for example, there are some business models that are very good and function really well in the normal times. When things are good, they do great. In bad times, they break down and break down very badly to the point the company goes bust. You know, a case in point, think about a business model where a company needs to have a good credit rating all the time just to stay in business. I mean, this was a requirement for companies like Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers. They had to have a good credit rating. When, of course, times turned bad and the rating agencies downgraded them, suddenly lost access to commercial paper market and short-term financing, and the business model blew up. And that... That's the kind of fragility of a business model that we'd like to avoid. Are there commonalities in the macro concerns? Sometimes, I mean, one of the things, a sort of recurrent thing, a recurrent sort of source of trouble that sort of snares people again and again and again and again, and it's very odd, is currency mismatches at the sovereign level and the corporate level. By which I mean, you often have times when borrowing in one currency is so cheap, a currency which is different from the currency of the issuer. That is, an example would be the Mexican banks, Mexican government issuing paper, issuing debt in US dollars in the early mid 1990s. But that in itself led to the big tequila crisis, of course, when uh, there was a run on the peso and the peso collapsed. And of course, the currency mismatched the level of banks. Many of the banks went bust. Same thing happened in 1998, 97, 98. 
Thai banks, Malaysian banks, uh, Indonesian banks. They borrowed lots in US dollars because it was very cheap to borrow in US dollars. And then, of course, they turned around and lent the money to local borrowers in the local currency. And they assumed that they could re uh, all these things would be repaid at a fixed rate. And unfortunately, the currency was devalued. So for what every sort of uh, the size of liability ballooned and ballooned massively. So or you saw that in 2000, 2001, in the case of uh, Argentina, when, of course, the link with the US dollar and the Argentinian peso was severed. And the peso dropped like lead from $1, being worth $1 to 25 cents. So liabilities multiplied fourfold. So that's a theme that has just recurred again and again and again. Now, what's the most recent uh, version of the same theme? Here's a guess. Again, I've worried about this since 2013. Those chickens haven't come home to roost, but they may well do, and hopefully they won't. But there's been a tremendous amount of borrowing in US dollars, unhedged, uh, financially unhedged or operationally unhedged by the issuing companies, which typically don't have operations which produce US dollars. So if, for example, you're a Turkish construction company, and I mentioned Turkey not because uh, of anything other than the fact, but there are lots of Turkish construction companies, private companies, whose revenues are totally Turkish lira, but have borrowed in US dollars. So were the Turkish lira to come under pressure, their liabilities would start to balloon enormously. And of course, being a builder, a Turkish builder with your business largely in Turkey, you do not have a built-in hedge, currency hedge, based upon the nature of your business itself. So that exposure continues to this very day. I have no idea if it, and when it gets worse, which precipitates the next sort of crisis. I'd love to steer the conversation towards you, if we could. You're very generous in sharing your wisdom with our community. You're giving us so much of your time. What's motivating you to be so giving? Well, let's talk about the source. Uh, the source, and I think, of lots of thoughtful conversations ideas and thoughts about investments and investing, and really goes beyond just individual investments. MOI has been a source of a great deal of education for me. In my few words, hopefully I can leave behind something that's useful, something in kind that is symmetric to what people have done for me over the years, having read MOI and watched various of the podcasts and uh, videos that y'all have done, interviews and conversations that y'all had with people. We hope Latticework 2017 becomes a conversation that hopefully this podcast might inspire some people to reach out to you. What type of dialogue would be value-add? Well, what we do is a very simple thing. What we do is stuff that is obviously second nature to us. It may be different. It may be an outlier in terms of other people's thinking. Hopefully, I have given people food for thought as many of your other commentators and your guests have over the years. And if people would like to talk about it, further the conversation, I'd be happy to hear from them. But really rather, I mean, this is what we do. This is what I know. I, I know a little bit about this, not much about other stuff. I mean, our stuff is our meat and potatoes, as the image here, which is an odd, it's sort of an odd thing. But this is what we do all the time. This is what we do. And we can certainly talk to it. Cannot talk to other variants of value investing even. I mean, so our stuff is very narrowly defined, the kinds of stuff. And happy to talk about that. Are there any profiles of people who you'd like to meet? It's certainly happy to hear from people with whom my comments resonate. That is probably going to be a source of 
some two-way intellectual stimulation. I mean, you don't have to agree with me. That's fine. In fact, it's preferred. It's always worthwhile having our ideas, our thoughts subject to scrutiny and criticism. That's very important. Otherwise, we would stagnate. Obviously, where we've gotten to is in great part because of thinking about what we do, hopefully refining it over different episodes that have, things have been imperfect. Hopefully we have it down, sort of. But I'm sure there's always going to be circumstances under which we will learn more. Circumstances are usually of adversity. So, I mean, if other people have experiences similar and would like to share them or have comments about what I've said so far today, we'd love to hear them. We're really excited to learn more from you in Let Us Work 2017. We're always very grateful for the time that you give us and the wisdom you share with us. Thank you for letting us be here with you right now. And that we look forward to seeing you in person at the Yale Club. Thank you again, Shai. Thanks for the opportunity. Hello, this is Shai speaking. With a blank sheet of paper, we set out to design a platform that truly has a reason to exist. We began with five building blocks. One, great people. Two, purposeful interactivity. Three, first-hand perspective. Four, intellectual honesty, and five, shared learning. We have laid the foundation for something beautiful. Latticework 2017 brings together individuals from around the globe to unpack the many angles of intelligent investing in a changing world. We are learning more about challenger brands, about China, and about disruptive innovation. We are case studying the past in an effort to better navigate the future. We are exploring what is changing and also what is not. Explore the Latticework podcast series via the link at latticework.com. And also, let's meet one another, not just you and I, the collective one another, 100 of us handpicked. Apply to participate in Latticework 2017 at latticework.com, taking place on September 7th in New York City for a full day of fresh insights and new friendships. I hope to see you there.